Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia and I'm honored to welcome David Sin in the podcast today. David is an architect, urbanist, and an urban expert. Currently, he's a partner at Softer and the author of the book Soft City. Previously, David worked 17 years at Gale Architects, an urban strategy and design firm based in Copenhagen. David has been focusing on master planning frameworks and urban design, collaborating with other professionals in the planning and building process, applying Jan Gale's theories to large-scale projects. David is also renowned as an inspiring educator and lecturer and has taught at architecture and design schools all over the world. David has developed numerous tools for collaboration and engagement in the process of rethinking master plans to deliver denser and more diverse urban places while maintaining the human scale. Welcome to Green Mind, David. Thank you, Claudia. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm super excited to have you today to have a great conversation about all things intersection, built environment, humans and climate change. But first, I'd like to start with asking you what led you to a career in architecture, urbanism and design. And maybe to clarify what I just said in the bio, what is master planning and urban design actually? Okay, first part, I think you re- it's a really interesting question. You really made me think. So some of I think does go back to childhood. Mm-hmm. My dad was an engineer. My mom was at home and I was the younger child. So I had an older sister who was going to school. So I was still at home, but learning a bit of stuff coming from school. My dad was gonna, it was always like making things. He was in the army. He was a map maker. So we had maps at home and uh, a lot of old maps. So I guess I could learn to read a map. I learned to read a map before I could read writing. So I was very aware of this concept of the plan and mm. communication through graphics. And I found that very exciting. And then my dad was making things and some of them weren't great. And I would compare the things he would make with the things we bought. And I started to think about how things were made a lot. And then my grandmother had a rich friend. And she would buy me Lego because she had no children of her or grandchildren of her own. So I started playing with Lego a lot. And at that time, now kids, all kids have lots of Lego, but at that time it was quite exclusive in a way. And I think maybe I remember reading on the box that Lego was made in Denmark. And that made me think about, oh, there's this place called Denmark. Mm-hmm. And I was also very fascinated by Nordic countries just because Scotland's also a bit Nordic country. And reading these moment stories Judy Dench, the famous actress, she read the Moomin stories, which are like Finnish children's mm-hmm. stories on, on, on BBC. And so there's a lot of Nordic things going on as planting seeds. And then because, I think because I was the younger child alone with my mother, I got to see this side of how the house, household was run. Mm-hmm. So I would see my mom doing things in the house. And I, so I guess that thing about the architecture started there somewhere. So there was some things in my childhood, which already you could see were signs of being interested in making things and communicating with graphics and thinking about how thinking about how things work. And at school, and I, I think that's something really interesting now, especially with AI and everything, like what's the point of going to school? Mm-hmm. And, and the importance of learning practical things and being creative, practically creative. And I think that's something I think a lot about now. I feel school, that the academic focus of school is mm-hmm. maybe something we need to rethink. And then I guess finally was just something about the Scandinavian connection coming early was also something about this idea that about fairer societies. I I grew up in the time of very heavy politics with Margaret Thatcher, the miners strike in the UK. And a lot of things were happening. I felt we need a more fair society. And so those are the kind of things that maybe planted the seeds for becoming an architect, building things and maybe coming to Scandinavia. Oh yeah, one other thing. 
there were these Richard Scarry children's books, these kind of picture books with lots of things going on. And so I guess there's this idea all the time that, that it wasn't just about making like a building, like an architect, it was like how the city works. And I guess when I was building with my Lego, I was always thinking about a whole environment and there was traffic and there was things going on all the time. And I think that life thing really resounded with me when I eventually got to architecture school and um, I heard Jan Gale lecture and that kind of made me think, okay, it's about life. It's about making a, a platform for life. And I think it's really interesting. Anybody who's interested in a creative field or, or, or a social field, what are the, the seeds of your childhood that maybe make that happen? The second part of the question about what is master planning urban design, that's a really good question. First of all, I think the name is really terrible. The master plan. I am the master. I know the fact that it's masculine as well. That's a whole other, but I don't think in reality, there's a master plan because nobody is the master. It's, 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 it's about teamwork, but this idea of creating a framework and it strikes me that historically when they built cities, it took a long time to do. So you make a framework and you create a frame. And some very simple rules. Maybe it's not even written down that everybody under instinctively understands. And that framework goes over time. And a lot of really great places, the kind of actually the traditional villages and towns of Scotland, um, beautiful places in Scandinavia, but all over Central Europe, you'll know in, in, in Slovakia as well, amazing, beautiful towns, villages, old towns. There was a kind of an understanding that allowed things to grow over time. So this, I think the key thing about master planning is, is about creating a, a framework which can grow over time that makes sense and stays relevant. Because I, I guess the other thing about the professional design fields, we often design things maybe over specifically. So this is exactly for what we need right now, rather than recognizing, well, things are going to change over time and buildings can be up to be quite robust. Maybe we build something as a, as a house. And that house becomes a doctor surgery and then becomes an office and then becomes a school, then it becomes a house again. So there's some generalities. And I guess maybe the key thing is that as an urbanist, as a planner, uh, a master planner, you have to be a generalist. You have to care about many different things and understand that context is not about one thing or two. It's, it's about this whole load of different things happening over a longer time. So that, that would be my, my, my starting point of, of what, what, what yeah. um, master yeah. planning is. Does that make sense? Yeah, this, this makes great sense. Thank you for, for sharing this. Because for someone who works in the built environment area or real estate or, or city planning, master planning is a term that, you know, everyone knows what to, yeah. what to um, picture under it. But I, I was just I wanted yeah. to make this clear to the listener. But what you just said about being a generalist and considering many different elements in building a city and in urban design, I'd like to touch upon your book, Soft City, which was published in 2019. And I think that could be a great starting point for our conversation here. So in this book, you show how cities with well-designed density can result in higher quality of life for humans. And this book is an important addition to the growing literature on people-friendly architecture, which I love this mm. term, people-friendly architecture and city planning. So let's unpack it a bit. What, what should we imagine under the term soft city? So I guess it's just to, to segue from the last one, I think this master plan term, lots of people use it and don't really think about it and just say, it's just a drawing as you know, it, it, so I think it's important to really, and it goes back to this, being a kid, I'm looking at these maps and trying to understand that this green, what this means and this blue, this river, and 
that this is it, this representation we make in a plan drawing represents life that's going on. And so that's, I think, that idea of a container for life. Um, and soft, I guess, well, I mean, when I was making the book, um, and I was still at the Gale office then, we discussed a lot, and, and to be honest, nobody liked the name. And um, everything's strange, soft city, that's really weird. Can you say sustainable city, resilient city? And on the one hand, I felt, yeah, we could, but those names are really loaded. And for many people, if you say sustainable city or resilient city, they'd originally switch off. That's really boring. And one nice thing about the word soft is it didn't really belong to any kind of politics or anything. And there was kind of room for interpretation. What is a soft city? It sounds nice. What's your soft city? And I think that's important too, is that when we want to start talking about people-friendly architecture, all people are a little bit different. Mm. And that's fantastic, but also problematic. Mm. You know, and we're trying to, because we're trying to put them in these, all these boxes of buildings. And so if you could sort of find a way to recognize that although human beings essentially were the same, we come in the same physical package with legs and eyes and the way we see the world, but we all feel a little bit different and we have a need and a need to express our individuality, that the, the soft city would have some kind of tolerance that allows us all to be individuals, that we all are a little bit different. And if we can be a little bit more comfortable in ourselves, then we find it easier to get on with other people. And for me, there's a kind of maybe the soft city because now I've been surprised because now the book has been translated to something 20 something languages. I never expected that. Also in very different cultures from Europe. Mm. And I, I, I feel like, what, what do I, I have to give a disclaimer in the book. So this book was written in Copenhagen. And I don't know if it makes sense in Brazil or in South Korea. But in, in some ways, I think human beings is universal. I mean, how human beings are. But there's also something very positive um, in, in the, about the European city. And because the latest translation of the book is Ukrainian, which is really incredible for me that a war has been going on and they've actually translated and printed my book in the Ukraine. It's incredible. But it's really raised a lot of questions about what is the European city. And I think in some ways we, we have, and especially in um, the former Soviet Union, the countries which were controlled uh, by the Soviet Union, there is a, a huge legacy, maybe 70, 80% of all buildings are Soviet buildings, the Soviet modernist buildings. And, you know, you can see a lot of that architecture is not about the individual. It's not about expressing. It's not about allowing you to influence your life. These blocks, you cannot change anything. You cannot open a shop on the corner. So it, it kills your individuality, your freedom, entrepreneurship, creativity. And that's one side. But on the other side of the plan, we have this American model, and, and we've heard the story. I heard the mayor of Tirana in Albania, which is Europe's North Korea, talking about the changes they've been through. And he talked about the casino capitalism of this kind of American style of coming of, you know, high-rise super skyscrapers and shopping centers and this kind of huge carpet of standalone houses. And that actually, that individualistic architecture or that individualistic planning doesn't help us either. So we've got two extremes. There's the Soviet, you are nothing as an individual, or the American, the individual is everything. And the idea, could there be something in the middle that, yes, we are individuals, we have the right to live, to love, 
to do the things we want to do, but we need to be part of society, we're part of community, we can have both and. So I think a big, what I've recognized now, having this conversation in, in, uh, because all the things happening in Ukraine, is this need for something in the middle, something which recognizes we're human beings, we're individuals, we, we have all those needs, but we also need to be part of a, of a society. We need to have a street to walk down. We need to have public parks. We need to meet each other and interact. So yeah, that was I, a quite long answer. Some examples about how should we imagine soft city. Is it the, is Copenhagen an example of a soft city where there are, it's super bike friendly, walk friendly. There's these five, four, six story buildings, max, uh, a lot of parks, a community building. Can you give us an example of, of, of what a soft city is? Or I think that's really good. It's really good you bring up Copenhagen. I think and it's exactly the reasons you've said is something about the scale of that kind of medium height buildings joined up buildings, blocks with little courtyards. But what's interesting is, I would say, historically, if you look maybe after the Second World War, Copenhagen was very similar to many other cities. It was similar to the, the, the urbanism, was similar to something you'd find in England, in Slovakia, in Germany. You'd find in Spain a very similar kind of architecture, very similar scale of architecture. Yeah. But And I think, interestingly, Denmark was not a rich country after the Second World War. So they didn't spend, they didn't demolish lots of things. They just kept what they had. Uh, working within that existing structure, bike lanes was quite a cheap thing to make. Greening the courtyards, you know, tidying up the black courtyards, which were quite messy in the past. Planting green stuff in the back courtyard, that was quite easy as well. So what's interesting in that Danish story, which was copied by other places too, that they just worked with what they had, but they softened what they already had. So they softened the, the existing streets. And if you see these old photographs of Copenhagen, you see there's lots and lots of traffic and it didn't, it wasn't, I was saying, okay, we can have wider pavements, we can have bike lanes, we can plant trees, yeah. we can green up courtyards. So I think what was the learning, I think, from, from Copenhagen was without huge investments, you could actually make these soft things. And I think what's great about Copenhagen, and I don't want to offend the, the architects who build lots of exciting contemporary buildings, but people don't go to Copenhagen to see the, the big new royal library or the, 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 the new opera house or the, the, a lot of big buildings, new buildings. But people go to Copenhagen to hang out, to sit on the waterfront, to, to ride a bike everywhere and to, to, to sit around the park, to sit on a terrace. I mean, and also remember, Copenhagen doesn't have a great climate. It's not more, obviously, further south you go in Europe, the nicer the weather. Copenhagen doesn't have nice weather. It's cold and wet and windy. But somehow they've made the best of what they've got. So maybe that's another part of this soft city idea is actually making the best of what you've got and using quite small resources to make significant changes yeah i actually recognize what you said about how copenhagen evolved with amsterdam i i studied there for my bachelor and it's the same when i look at pictures from amsterdam tens of, of years ago decades ago there is a lot of cars a lot of traffic as you said but they managed to transform it quite significantly with i think i've been to copenhagen quite some times and there is something about Biking in a city, especially, and for me at least, that makes it so much more livable yeah. uh, that you just cannot ex express and feel in any other cities. That's Thank you for sharing that. You said so, something, you've said something really interesting there. Like, why is it that biking makes the city feel livable? That's a really interesting comment. And I think what's really interesting there is 
when you're on a bike, and maybe it's the same thing when you're walking, you're more connected with what's around you. You feel more alive. You're moving your body. You've got the, you know, you're feeling the weather, the sun on your skin, the wind on your face. You're seeing people. And there's something about that experience of not being inside a, a metal box, but actually like a car, yeah. but actually just being a human being, mm. having a sensory and sociable experience. And that's really nice. So I think I, I'm actually making a note that like, the human feeling of being on a bike. I think that's a really key part. Actually, this also brings me to the next question and the question we explore in this podcast a lot about climate change and how it's all connected. And what I just now realized as we are talking about it is that a lot of the uh, the way cities are designed that are more human are at the same time also more sustainable in the climate change sense. So let's say the more the city is green, the the better we feel as humans, but also the more carbon is captured or the more we, we bike, the less uh, carbon emissions are emitted from car fuel. Fuel. So uh, I'd like to hear your perspective about how cities or what city, what role cities and urban design and architecture can play in in both mitigating climate change, so making it be less carbon intensive, let's say, but also adapting to climate change. Because and this is also something you touch upon in the book. Every citizen will need to deal and is already dealing yeah. with the, the impacts of climate change. So yeah, so this is a big. It's <laughs> a huge question. Let's yeah. let's talk about this for the next three hours. <laughs> well, that's such a good question. Where to start? First of all, we have a big challenge. I think now now we're seeing right now we're seeing this unbelievable temperatures now in Italy, forty five degrees, and something's happening. The climate change, climate catastrophe, climate crisis. A lot of people are still in denial, and understandably, I think because there's this idea of making changes in your life and you've been working really hard and you bought a house and you bought a car and you're working just to pay for all of this and suddenly somebody's telling you oh your lifestyle is not sustainable hmm. and it's and i think it is quite hard to understand why how my house and my car connects to this global thing and also the fact that will it make any difference if i stop driving my car will it make any difference because it's going to take so long for the result to happen so it's really my grandchildren that will be affected. And it's how we can make things relevant. And my, I don't know, maybe my gut feeling is that telling people in this kind of very like authoritative way, don't do that, that's bad. It's not going to influence most people. And at the same time, I feel this going back to what you're saying, about actually it's when you go to Copenhagen, you think, oh, it's really nice to go to Copenhagen and ride your bike. So if we can connect these two things that, Yes, there's a climate crisis in the, I thought a lot about this and the language we used in the book and in the book, I tried very hard to positive language about things just because Anne Gale, I had a very nice conversation with Anne Gale who gave me advice about making the book and don't be negative because his original book, Life Between Buildings was very critical and he got he upset a lot of people and people found it depressing. So I thought the story has to be very positive. And so, so this idea of living with the weather and there's partly building on this Nordic idea of there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes that you can go out in all weather. And what's amazing, anybody who goes to the Nordic countries, it's amazing that you think, why do you bother buying garden furniture? The season's so short. Why do you buy, bother buying summer clothes? The summer's so short, but there's, there's a kind of a culture of really enjoying the seasons. You've got beautiful you know, guys wearing shorts, girls in summer dresses. They've also got really good winter clothes. They've got good rain clothes. 
So you adapt and you used to live with the weather. So the idea of living with the weather was this idea in the books, okay, whether you're in a hot or a cold country, if you can just, what are the small things you can do to adapt and almost enjoy the weather? Because sometimes, obviously, if you're in a modern office building and it's really hot and the sun is shining on the glass windows, and it's unbearable, and you switch on the air conditioning and then you're freezing. But if you can find ways, and there's lots of historical, traditional, um, vernacular ways of dealing with climate that actually makes it nice to live in the climate you have. And this feeling, again, of this both um, sensory and social thing about feeling the weather, feeling the changes in the weather, enjoying the heat, enjoying the cool. If you're protected, you can watch the rain. It's wonderful to watch the rain if you're not getting wet. So just give people experiences where changes in the weather could be positive. Now, I think what's happening now is some of the interventions we're making. There are all these traditional things, but things like the Climate Quarter in Copenhagen, which is addressing the fact that, yeah, occasionally we get extreme rain. Uh, we could spend millions and millions of kroner building pipes under the city, which you would never see. Uh, when there's heavy rain, the, the water would disappear. Or we could do something much cheaper and much more beautiful and make our quarters much more green, have lots of green stuff. And occasionally, two or three days of year, suddenly there's water there and we get this very poetic, reminder of climate change. And actually it's beautiful and our kids can play in the water and it looks nice. Oh yeah, and it rains a lot. So if we can be, and I guess it's about being friends with the weather, being friends with the climate and just what are the little things we can do? And then and as you become more accustomed to it, and again, it's about practice. If you practice living with your climate, being outside more, and because coming back to the joy of cycling, you can cycle on a sunny day and you keep going and actually on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a rainy day. And then you feel quite satisfied. Yeah, I cycle on a rainy day as well. Yeah. And so you build up a kind of like habits. And I think there's something about habit building. It's like the people who do this winter bathing. Like you don't start in the middle of winter. You start in the summer and you just keep bathing every week. And then the water gets cold. You become accustomed to, to doing winter bathing. For many people in Copenhagen, the, this climate adaptation by greening the streets, like putting trees and um, uh, bioswales, all this green stuff in the street space, most of them see it just as, as an, an improvement of amenity. It's making mm -hmm. the, the, the quarter more beautiful. Yeah. Maybe they understand the idea is a bit cooler. It's a bit quieter because the trees absorb noise, they absorb the heat. And then the, the climate change, the, the flooding thing is a bonus. Mm. And, and I think generally one of the easy things Generally, people like trees. People like green stuff. Um, maybe they don't feel they want to be green politically, but green stuff in the city is generally good news. And that can be a good starting point for, for bringing in this new conversation about climate change. Yeah, but then, then also many people, if you ask them about there is a free plot, like a brownfield in the city, what do you want to have out of it? And then they always say a park rather than having a, a building with amenities. So that also depends on which... Oh, no, yeah, you're totally right. I, yeah. I have a project like this. I have, we were 10 years ago, we made a groundbreaking project in Lille in France. And now there's a big discussion rather than this master plan for a whole new quarter, why not just have a park? And, and, and I, I really understand that. But a big bonus is if we can get the idea that 
our streets can be more like parks. And that's the biggest part of open space in the city is the streets. And so I think that the key thing is if we can rethink that the streets as public spaces, as amenity spaces, our streets can feel more like parks. And that's right outside your front door. So the idea you step outside your house almost into a park-like space. And that can be a big challenge. And I think when the street, if we start working with the streets more, people might accept that the brownfield sites have to get built on because we need to build a denser, more diverse city because if we want this ambition of the 15-minute neighborhood, all those kind of things, because the real benefit of city life is having things in proximity. You can walk to school, you can walk to the baker, you can walk to work. But there are many, many different things in, in, in the same area. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree. And probably the reason why people want more parks to build is because they feel lack of greenery in their current status quo. Definitely makes sense. You touched upon Jan Gill, and I definitely want to dedicate one question to his work and what you've been working on with him. But maybe I'll jump over to, because we talked a lot about Copenhagen and Nordic cities, but I'd be curious what you think about London's urbanism. So the I found the Gill study about London, the last one from 2004. So that's almost 20 years ago. What do you think about it? Because for me, at least, and this is a personal reflection, I moved here from Amsterdam and I feel how way less livable the city is. By definition, it's super busy and everyone in a hurry. And I, I think I'm walking like three times faster than when I came here. And uh, <laughs> yeah. what do you think about London? Okay, I think, okay, this is a very loaded question. As, asking a Scotsman about London also is very loaded. Uh, I was actually in the office when we, st- when we started the London project. And I remember that going on. So I know a little bit about the, the Gale study. I mean, there's lots of interesting things. That, like, There's a very different tradition in, in, in the United Kingdom, in, in, in Great Britain, which is to do with its kind of imperial past, its colonial past, that there's no tradition of public space, maybe in the European sense. So the fact that basically in the British Empire, there were no public spaces because there was a huge fear of some kind of uprising like storming the Bastille in France. So deliberately, cities were designed without public space. So like the squares of London, those beautiful squares are not squares. They're private gardens, many still with a lock and key, so that the crowd cannot gather there. And of course, what's nice is and recently, some of these have opened up and that's a nice amenity. But this idea of public space is not in the British Empire. And if you look throughout the, the cities of the British Empire from... Melbourne, Adelaide to Ottawa, Vancouver. There's not a tradition of building cities. Even in, in, in the new town of Edinburgh, the, the, the public spaces were locked gardens. Yeah. And so that there's not a tradition. And that tradition comes right up to today. And like, why has it taken so long to make Oxford Street into pedestrian space? Because the streets are actually roads. So Oxford Street was an A road. It was part of the national road network. And it was a different authority controlling it. So just to, it's just to say, we say, oh, why isn't London more like Copenhagen or Amsterdam? There's a lot of historical things yeah. that influence how cities grow. And so that historical thing has been even quite significant. Jan Gill always joked that after Scandinavia, the number one clients he had were, was the former British Empire. Because there was this longing for public space because there had, it had never really been considered. For, for a whole range of reasons. On the other hand, I think as an urbanist, London has got lots of really exciting, unique things. 
And I would recommend if any London enthusiasts and listeners, Stein Eiler Rasmussen, who's an old a Danish architect, writer. He wrote many, he's, he's famous for a book called Experiencing Architecture. But Stein Eiler Rasmussen's book about London is fantastic. And he really talks about many of the unique, amazing London phenomenon, because many parts of London are very human scaled, almost village-like. And there are phenomenon like the kind of like the muse, kind of very unique kind yeah. of London solutions to things, dealing with urbanism in a quite quirky, unusual human way. So it feels, so traditional London feels very different from other European cities. And that's a really fascinating subject. I guess what's maybe interesting is maybe again in the post-war period, and I think especially since the 80s, London has been so much about economic growth investment and things like Canary Wharf and it's about the big money things that have pushed things that this human humanistic people-friendly agenda has not really been there so I think that's and so I'd say what London what's great about London is traditional the traditional things the legacy of, of a smaller scale of funny little pubs of narrow streets of news of amazing public parks traditional public parks then those squares which have been opened up. But what I'm missing is maybe the, the more progressive social agenda, which many of the other cities have had, which have maybe meant that Amsterdam and Copenhagen, many cities in Germany, have moved on to other things. And I think particularly the streets, and that was at the key point of the Gale study, was to work with the streets, because the streets had the potential to be that public space that was missing. And I think... It was unfortunate that not more of the ideas in the Gale study from almost 20 years ago were not taken up. But I think there was something extremely controversial because people, oh, this is already crowded so with so much traffic. Um, we can't lose any more traffic space. Mm -hmm. And I think if they dared to have wider pavements, maybe closed some streets to through traffic, some small changes, People could have seen the benefits of, of change and that, that, that might have changed things. Yeah, I also, what came to my mind now is I was recently in New York City and this is also where Gail has a big footprint and I saw some of the streets being closed and there were, there was so much life on the streets with these little small chairs and tables and people just having drinks from different cafes around. So that was really, that's something really that I think uh, London can improve in. So I'd like to go to Jan Gell now and talk about how his work has influenced you and actually maybe tell our listeners what his principles are. I'm just going to introduce him briefly. So he's seen as the godfather of humanistic playing and pioneer of livable cities. I love the word livable cities and yeah. people-friendly architecture. He has researched and he has done a lot of research and, and, and came up with frameworks about how to use public spaces worldwide. And he has this quote that illustrates what he believes in, which is first life then spaces, then buildings. The other way around never works. And I really like this quote and um, maybe we can use it as a start to, for you yeah. to describe what you worked with him on and uh, how you see his legacy. Yeah, for, first of all, for me, it's, it's very personal. I threw this story with this kid playing with Lego. I had this dream already. I was six years old. I said I was going to be an architect. And I got to architecture school or uh, architecture school in Edinburgh and I find it very disappointing. I found architecture was really a bit pretentious. It was very far from the reality of everyday life. And all of this practical stuff I'd learned from my dad, the engineer, and being at home with my mom, watching my mom do her everyday life 
in this kind of neighborhood life. None of that was architecture school. So I was ready to drop out. And at the beginning of the second year, I, I went back for the second year. And at the beginning of the second year, we had this amazing series of lectures by Jan Gale. There was a, a tradition that Jan Gale, through these Nordic connections, the Danish consulate, would give lectures in Edinburgh. I changed my life. It was incredible because Jan Gale talked about everyday life and the joys of everyday life. And it was interesting in many ways. And this was before we were talking about climate change. It was more, I'd say it was more about a social thing. The idea that you could have almost like this feeling of being on vacation, of being on holiday and everyday life if you just take care of small things. And at the core of Jan Gale, and it's a very interesting story, is because Jan Gale met and fell in love with an environmental psychologist, Ingrid Gale, uh, Ingrid became his wife. And, uh, and Ingrid kind of being this very well-educated woman, changed the discourse and tried to um, introduce a kind of more scientific view because a lot of things in architecture are actually about opinion. It's more about art than science. And Ingrid Gale was able to bring in a whole range of, of interesting understanding about how the human body works, how far our eyes can focus, how far our voice can carry, why we feel comfortable in different environments. And it was great stuff because already those kind of modernistic housing estates, which were appearing in Denmark, and Ingrid Gale told Jan, don't you know that children who, who start school, when they're coming home, they can't find their way home from school because all the buildings look the same. Mm. Or don't you know about the research that children who live high up in buildings, they've got less friends because they don't get out to play as much. And this understanding that, okay, the, the built environment has a, has a real physical effect on and you can measure it. That was a, a key point. So Jan and Inger Gale went to, they went, they went to Italy and they studied what made great spaces work. And this idea that things were measurable and you could take the human experience seriously. So that was, that, that, that was the, 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 the foundation of the Jan story. I think what was for me was important was it was it made it was actually about almost something about enjoyment. It made this idea of it being in the city enjoyable and basically connecting this psychological needs and the, the functioning of the human body, the human senses, but basically recognizing that human beings are both sensory animals, uh, sensual animals, that the senses are really important and we're super sensitive to where we are, but we're also sociable. And as, if you think about the history of human beings, we've lived in tribes and in clans and villages. We've lived in big families. So it's not natural to be completely alone. It's, it's natural to be together with other people. And this basic idea that, that life can be really pleasurable is, is maybe the, is the, is the focus of everything, that we can actually give pleasurable life. So that was the kind of the, the background stuff. Yeah. And unpacking it, I think the problem is very often there's an obsession that we're going to build a building and we have to build a building and we, have a, and, and we get really focused on that and the architect's really focused on the design mm -hmm. and maybe the politician is really focused. We build a school and everything's old. Mm. And then we have a budget and we start you know, doing all this stuff and we're delivering it. Maybe we're not asking questions. What do we need for our children? Oh. How do we want them to learn? How do we want to live? And we don't ask any of these kind of questions because they, oh, we need to get this new school built. Mm. Maybe we can rebuild the school we've got. 
in order to be one one school or be better with more smaller local schools. Just thinking about what's the real question. Mm-hmm. I don't think we spend much time on that more fundamental question. Yeah. Then you can start and think, well, okay, if we know the kind of life, we'd like to have this life, which is more relaxed, um, it was less, less polluted, it was quieter, I'd feel safer, I'd like my children to be able to walk to school. Um, and okay, um, you'd like your kids to walk to school, that's it. Then we need to have safer roads, we need to have safer spaces, we need a different driving culture, we need different speeds. And then actually, okay, then, be, and then maybe the building is at the end of the story. And I think almost every building question, you can turn it around and say, what do we really need? And I think very often as individuals, but also as a society, we don't really ask those questions like, how do we want to live? We often think, okay, if I buy that car, then I want to get fast and then I'm able to do what I want. Let's just talk about the things you want to do rather than why you need this car to get there. What are, the, what are the things you want to learn? How do you want to work? How do you want to make your business? How do you want to spend your time? And then if we start with those kind of questions, they can inform the, whole, the environment we live in, which is still quite complex in terms of traffic and weather and economics and commerce and all these different things. And after that, we can start thinking about, well, what are the buildings which might support or support those things? So mm-hmm. no, it's, it's that, that was... Well, that yeah, that's some, but that sums up the philosophy of the hand. And maybe some, what are some memorable examples that you maybe were presented with when you were studying or some, I mentioned New York City where Jan had some projects on making the city more livable. Obviously, Copenhagen probably is the one where he made the most impact. But can you give our listeners an example of what it means when Jan Gill's principles are applied in a city? Yes, of course. I think in a way, New York is, is more astounding than Copenhagen. Things changed over a much longer period, like 50, 60 years. Whereas New York, it was very dramatic. And what was very exciting in the office at the time, and it was, at that time, tactical urbanism wasn't really known. And the big thing was that I think the changes, especially concentrate. There's a funny story that Mayor Bloomberg came to Copenhagen to meet Jan. And it was the first, and it was the, the, the funny part was it was the first sunny weekend of the year. And so Mayor Bloober came to Copenhagen and of course it was Copenhagen and there were people, women in their summer dresses, cycling and children playing and everybody was outside. And that incredible way in Scandinavia when the first spring weekend comes, people go crazy. This is what Mayor Bloomberg experienced. If he'd come a week earlier, it would be rainy and cold. And it wouldn't have been the same atmosphere at all. But Mayor Bloomberg got this idea, wow, I want this in New York. People sitting outside. And, and he wasn't the first person. The idea of making Broadway into a people-friendly, pedestrian-friendly space, that was talked about for me 20, 30 years. But nobody really knew how to do it. There were two key things um, that, that I mean, way happened. The first one was a kind of process of, of, of measuring. And Jan Gale has this thing like, yeah, everybody wants to do a project. Before we start, let's just measure first. Let's understand what's going on. Then we'll have a baseline data to compare any changes with. So going in and measuring, and that was really interesting was, for example, a very simple thing was Times Square, the most famous square in the world. And they, show, they could demonstrate 
that 90% of the surface of Times Square was carriageway, driving space. And only 10% of Times Square was for pedestrians, the pavement. It was a very small part of Times Square was actually for people. It wasn't a square at all. At the same time, when they looked at the users, 90% of the users were pedestrians. So 90% of the people were on 10% of the space. And suddenly, suddenly there was this understanding, wow, a journalist could write, hey, do the math. 90% of the people on 10% of the space, that doesn't make sense. And, and so that was the beginning of an understanding, hey, this is almost about democracy. And you can start thinking, okay, all those people, those 90% of people who are squeezed onto 10% of the space, they vote that you're going to change their lives. So that opened up an idea. So the idea of measuring and doing comparisons was a very good starting point for at least having a conversation and people thinking, hey, maybe this is not normal. Maybe this is not right. And then I think the next thing was to go in and do a quick change. Because the problem, if you change a city or, you know, if you dig up the street and, you know, there's a roadworks for six months, for a year, everybody hates it. Everybody's angry. Nobody gets Nobody understands the point. Um, the shopkeepers get angry and there's panic. So it's very hard to do a, that kind of project, which takes time, especially in a, in a very tough environment like New York. So the idea of going in and painting the street, just doing paint, a temporary closure, a temporary event. And first of all, there's the psychology of saying it's temporary. We're only just, it's just a temporary thing. It's not forever. Don't panic. If we don't, if you don't like it, we'll change it. We're not spending any much money. And then giving people a very immediate taste of what it could be. Eva Vestermark, who led the project from Gale, she had this idea of rolling out the red carpet on Broadway. And that was just painting it red, like some red paint. So red paint was like, whoa, is the red carpet. And at the last minute, there was an understanding almost the night before, hey, we can't just have an empty space. So they went to Costco or a supermarket and they bought lots of folding chairs just so there would be something there. And the next morning, when all the journalists come, there were people sitting in the chairs. Mm. And so rather than taking us taking a pictures of an empty space, they took a picture of life. And suddenly it became not an urban design, pro it was a people project because there are people there. It's people sitting like grand grandmothers sitting in a deck chair. And, and suddenly that was the change. And I think so the key thing was measurement to create a debate. And doing a quick thing, which wasn't beautiful, and nobody knew. Would people walk on a painted space? Would people sit on a folding chair? But they did. And so having a quick approach to give people a taste. And I think the temporary, this, this temporary Times Square, it was like, I don't know, eight or nine years. It was a temporary space before they dared say, okay, now we're ready to make it permanent. Mm. So I think you could also say this is a kind of soft approach. It's a soft approach. It's working with our minds, persuading us, explaining to us. It's giving us a gentle introduction, a quick, easy introduction. This is what it could be like. Imagine if it was even nicer. So I think that's, so for me, that's a kind of another part of the softness is also taking people on the journey for changes they couldn't possibly imagine. Because of course you say, yeah, but it's great in Copenhagen, but 99.9% .9 of people in New York haven't been to Copenhagen. So how can they know what it's like? How can they know what that feels like? Now, that's a great example. And I've experienced this myself, as I said, a couple of weeks ago. And it was 
really, I haven't seen it before, so I can't compare, but just from the pictures and from what you just said, it's crazy statistics and, and in, yeah. in sustainability, in, if I can say this loaded word in general, yeah. measurement is a super, is a really important, it is not just in sustainability everywhere. It's super yeah. important. Thanks for sharing this great insight into Angel's mind and then also the, the studio's mind in a way. There's so many questions I still want to ask you, but I'm wary of time. Maybe we can just uh, conclude with how would you summarize and maybe what you said before we started recording the vision for making cities more sustainable and how can we achieve this? And by the word sustainable, I think everything soft and and, and resilient and livable and sustainable in terms of climate change. Uh, how, how, how can we make this so that it enhances the quality of life and it's people friendly, but at the same time is resilient to climate changes and and also maybe perhaps, and there's a lot of factors, we are less lonely and more happy. Yeah. No, there are many things. I think maybe, and we can go over a little bit in time. I don't know if you've got time, but I, I, I thought you said something was, just because I'll tell you one quick thing about, about, about loneliness. I guess the pandemic was very significant on, on city life. And Soft City came out six months before the pandemic. And it was a little bit funny or not funny. And people would say to me, like, oh, David, you know, what a shame. You've written this book about this convivial, sociable city, and do you know it's over? The pandemic, everybody's moving to the suburbs. Nobody will use public transport again. This public life thing, it's over. It's, and it did for the beginning of everybody was planning what's going to happen with the pandemic. What the pandemic taught us was how valuable social contacts are how valuable neighborhood life is, because suddenly when we had a smaller world, the things that we could reach on foot became much more relevant. So our local neighborhood, our local quarter became much more relevant. Did we have a park? Was there a bench? Was there a local cafe or a shop? Spending more time outdoors because you couldn't go into, you had to meet outside. The outside spaces became more significant. And so there's maybe some positive things happened from the pandemic that we became more aware about our neighborhood life and our everyday life. Maybe for some kids, children will have this really happy memory of the pandemic because they spent more time with their parents. They were more at home. They were playing more. Maybe there are other things. I'm sure we definitely know that the pets, the dogs were much happier during the pandemic because they got much more attention. And it touches on a subject that what's very ironic, I mentioned earlier that the history of humanity, human beings have lived in tribes and clans and in extended families and village settings. You know what they say, it takes a village to raise a child, all of that social stuff. And I think what's ironic with now they say more than 50% of the world living in cities, in a way, it's ironic that we've got lo more loneliness than ever before. That although there's something about the urban setting we're in an urban setting mm. but it's not connecting us to each other and i think that's one of the interesting challenges and i'd say the the big challenges one of them is climate change one is also about about social we need to be better connected to the climate live with the weather but we also need to be better at living with each other in the city and being connected and seeing it not as a problem like the hot weather or the rain is not a problem it could be nice that those neighbors, those people that are different from me are not a problem. Actually, it's something really positive. But these other people who do different stuff, that's a good thing. And it's good that I'm close to them. But there's something about 
the soft, I don't know, threshold, the soft interface that connects me has to work. We're also facing unbelievable economic challenges about affordability. So I think many people, when you ask them, climate change is not their number one priority. The number one movie is about economics. It's that they can't afford a place to live. The cities are becoming extremely expensive. And that's a criticism you can make of many of those livable cities in the world, like Vienna and Copenhagen and Stockholm and Zurich are all super expensive cities. Why is a city like so expensive? When, and I've been seeing so many of the things that make them great are actually quite cheap. So like, how can we somehow translate that? So there's an economic question, affordability question. There is a social challenge. And what's also connected, we're going to see, we can see across Europe, across the world, a huge resentment towards immigration. On the one hand, we need immigration because for our societies to work. Also because of climate change, we can expect even more immigration from hot and flooded places moving to the safer places. So we're going to have to somehow deal with that. So somehow the city is the place where we have to solve everything. We have to solve economics and affordability. We have to solve the societal challenge of more people living together. Even in the Ukraine, because of war, four, five, six million people have moved from East Ukraine to West Ukraine. They're not going to go back tomorrow when the war is over because there's nothing to go back to. So living with new neighbors and this changing thing we have to deal with and climate change. So somehow, how can we design a city which allows us to live, to be more comfortably with all of that difference, different weather, different people, different economics. Um, and that's where the softness comes in, that we need to have a soft interface that connects us to the weather, that makes us feel safe and protected, that makes us feel safe and comfortable in the way we meet strangers. One of the interesting challenges, and because I'm having these conversations with Ukraine, one of the huge challenges they have is one million, it's mainly men in the frontline soldiers are going to come home. One million, and, they've, and they're psychologically scarred by being at war, and they're aggressive and angry and tired, and they're coming home. And how do they land into a nice human environment to be a nice husband, a nice father, a nice neighbor? And of course, if, if you're in the Soviet-style architecture, where the minute you open your front door, you're in the in the public realm, you need something more. You need a little front garden. You need a little protected space. We, have to, we need to take care of all of these little filters that make us comfortable. And so I think when these, these heroes come back for more, they don't need monuments. They need a good night's sleep. They need mm. a nice bench under a tree to sit calmly. They need to feel they can look out the window and they can watch their kids play safely. So in, in a way you can say, this is it's a bit banal, but it's what it's, if we take care, care of these banal things, a good night's sleep, a nice place to wait for the bus, our kids walking to school, safe place to play, shade from the sun under a tree, all these kind of simple things, these little, small, and I usually say it's smaller, lower, slower, simpler things, these softer mm. things. If we put those together, we can actually start dealing with these big, impossible problems. Because how can I possibly deal with climate change? Or how can I deal with the social upheaval of war and immigration? How can I deal with this economic crisis? Everything's un un unaffordable. Like I know. And if we can find ways 
through our skills as master planners, architects, urban designers, everybody who works with the curating of, of, of the city, making the city work. And if we can recognize, we can use these cheaper, simpler tools, we can maybe start to deal with the, these big challenges. Those are some great words to think about. I still have one more question, which I ask uh, every guest that I invite in the Green Minds podcast, which is, and this conversation was super refreshing for me as well, because it was stepping a bit outside of this pure climate change metrics and looking yep. at the human way more. So maybe I'll just rephrase the question to what would you advise anyone who's listening who would like to increase the quality of life of themselves, but also the people around them in the context of their urban life or the, the life around them? Okay, um, that's a really good question. And first of all, I say anyone, I think congratulations to anyone who's choosing a career to do something as important as working with the, the built environment because it's so influential. And I think maybe it's significant in a change from being like an expert in something to going into something which is more of a generalism and recognizing that there's a context, there's a social and economic and environmental context and having to work within that. It's super exciting. It's also super challenging. But I would really congratulate anybody for recognizing this is the forum we're being to work with. It's not enough just to work with making an eco product or some little service. You have to like look at things holistically. So I think that's a really smart choice. Well done for being aware of that. And then I think the question is how to work with it to make it more relevant. Like what are, and I, I, I say, I always go to your own personal experience. What I learned from Jan Gale many years ago was Jan Gale told very human, very personal almost anecdotal stories about experience, which made sense. I think a lot of what we have to do is about storytelling. And I think maybe, and I don't want to criticize Greta Thunberg because she's an amazing champion of, of the environment, but maybe she's not a great persuader in terms of the, the skeptics. We need to find good stories that people can understand that making adaptions in our lifestyles, in our physical environments, they can be easy, they can be affordable, but they can also can be enjoyable and fun. We might actually get a better life. And I think many people like maybe like you and me have recognized, hey, cycling's cool. It's not, it's not a punishment to have to cycle. And it's not a punishment to have to walk. And if you can start to bring that very personal experience, I say, you know, I have to like, you know, test things. I'll test things on my brother-in-law. Alaska, because they're all people you know, around us, people in our families who maybe question, like, what is it you're doing? What is it, what, what is it, this thing you do? And to find ways to tell the story, which are super relevant for others, that makes it, oh, wow, that would actually be an improvement in my life. And I think getting that across, communicating that is, is maybe the, the key thing. And, and we have to work on many different levels. We have to persuade the people with no money or with very little resources that they, is worth doing and why recycling their rubbish or riding a bike could make sense. It's not an insult to say to somebody who's got less money that they should ride a bike. And at the same time, persuading people, the decision makers, the people with money to invest in projects that maybe are more slower investments, that are more long-term planning. Politicians are maybe only thinking about a four-year political cycle thinking beyond that for those four years. For the investors thinking beyond this fiscal year, this quarterly report, this is not about 
making money for three months. This is about making money for the next 30 years. So just having that kind of slower, longer term point of view. So I think we need to work on our storytelling and not making up stories, but putting it all together so it makes sense and is relevant for a greater public. So that's, I think, maybe something you can work on. And great, I think is a really, when I started, I was told not to be an architect because already in the 1980s that computers will take over, there'll be no work. I think in terms of AI, we've got no idea what's going to happen. So staying focused on the analog, the physical, the, the, the sensory experience, the social experience, that's important too, because that's something that AI cannot replace. And the city is, is where everything's going to happen. All the decisions are going to be made. The inventions are going to be made. The creativity happens here. So that's a great place to be working and influencing. Thanks, David. A lot of things, long-termism, holistic thinking, storytelling, creativity, all these things are something that resonates with me and have been recurring in the talks I've been having in this podcast. So thank you very much for sharing this. And also thank you for the great conversation about us humans. Uh, it was really refreshing, as I said. So thank you very much for coming to Green Minds. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Um, it's a really honor to be part of this.